So thank you, Tim, for reading uh, the word today. And as we read those two words, we, we suddenly realize there's a couple similarities between those two accounts. Uh, you notice that people were afraid. Uh, in the Moses account, it's not spelled out that much in this shorter passage, but in the longer passages, you see that the people were afraid when they met with God at Sinai. There was thunder, lightning, loud noises. It was uh, a big deal. And uh, then, of course, the disciples, when they're with Jesus on the mountain, again, I guess mountains is a similarity too, there's also, they're also afraid. This sort of encounter with God that they have uh, is not a light, uh, you know, fluffy experience. It's a very significant, sobering experience that, that they have. And uh, it's funny because it's like sometimes when people are afraid, uh, I don't know what you're like, some people, when people are afraid, they get silent. And other people, when they're afraid, they talk more. And that's what I noticed in the Peter account. It's like, it says he doesn't know what he was, he didn't know what to say. He was so frightened. So he just babbled on about, let's build some shelters and let's do, you know, it's just, <laughs> that's sometimes how we are when we're afraid. But these, I want to just point out, these are two out of the five times uh, that scripture tells us about where God has decides to come and dwell with people. Two out of the five times. So the first one, we've been, we're on a bit of a journey going through the Bible from Genesis, the beginning, to Revelation, the end. And uh, you can sort of see our progress. We've, we're in our fifth week here. So we're going we're gonna to keep on trucking through, the, through this journey together as a church. Um, but there's five times where God came to dwell. First one is Adam and Eve. Creation, God comes to dwell. He walks with them in the cool of the day in the garden, has intimate relationship with them. They dwell together. It's amazing. Uh, of course... Uh, that doesn't last uh, because of sin. And uh, then here's the second time God comes to dwell. And that's this story of Moses that we're going to focus on today. And that the people of Israel have come out of Egypt. And now they're encamped around this mountain, Mount Sinai. And God has come down to dwell with them there. The third time is one we're pointing to every week. Because when you're reading the Old Testament, you really got to understand that so much of it is talking about what's yet to come. And it's, it's foreshadowing what's yet to come. And so we're, the third time God comes down to dwell is through Jesus, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas, the fact that uh, he was Emmanuel, God with us. He didn't just stay distant, but he actually came and uh, became one of us. Uh, it took on human form. The fourth time God comes to dwell is after Jesus is resurrected and he goes back to the Father, you think, oh no, now we've lost Jesus. Jesus said, hey, guess what? This next chapter is going to be better. How can it be better? We're losing Jesus. God is not going to be dwelling with us anymore. And they said, no, the Holy Spirit is going to be in each one of you. And so God is going to come to dwell not just beside you, but in you. So that's the fourth time. And then the fifth time is, is uh, all of these have happened in the past. All of these have happened. But the fifth one has not yet happened, and that's when Jesus comes again. The Bible talks about a second coming. So five different times God comes to dwell with people. And um, we're looking at the morning about Moses today, but we can't miss the fact that when Jesus came, uh, that that's part of the package too that we need to talk about. So now I've been enjoying this. Um, how, many of you, how many of you have gotten a copy for your family of the Story Bible? We've, we handed out, I think, 300, and I can't remember the exact number, but it's over 300 copies of the Story. And what it is, is it's basically, you take the Bible, and then uh, the Bible isn't always in 
perfect chronological order because it's like a library of books, right? The Bible isn't just a book, it's a library of 66 different books, but put together in one, you know, volume. You can carry it around. But it, so what the story is, is, we, is uh, someone had the idea that let, let's help people to engage the Bible and understand the big story of the Bible. And let's do it in a way so that they can quickly understand that what, what God is doing in the world from beginning to end. Right? Because often people read the Bible, they read one story and they go, oh, that's a nice story. I'm going to read another story and another story. Oh, the Bible's a storybook. Well, it has many stories in it. It has many different accounts. In fact, it has tons of different types of literature. It's got poetry and history and, and all sorts of other things. But there's one overarching story, and it's the story of God's redemption plan uh, for humanity, how God is going all out uh, to bring people back into relationship with him. And if you miss that, you misunderstand the Bible. If you miss that, you don't understand the Bible, even if you've read the Bible. You won't understand it unless you get that big overarching, we call it the upper story. And there's lots of lower stories, and our lives are, in fact, a lower story. But we are a part of a greater story, and that's the upper story of God that he's weaving together through all history, through the Bible, and now through our lives as well. Last week, we had our community advocate, Daisy Richardson, come up and, and speak, and she uh, you see the, the burning bush one, the fourth one there, the deliverance one? She taught on Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and how this was part, all of this was foreshadowing of what God was going to do through Jesus in the future. And it was incredible. She did such an, a great job teaching through um, that passage that I thought, wow, that's great. I'm so inspired. I can hardly get home and teach it to my family. And so you know how that is. You just think, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to sit around with my family. They're going to be wrapped with attention towards me. They're going to really listen. And it's just going to be this amazing moment. And now the church is also giving out copies of the kids version of the story and so that's what I was using so at home I took that and I opened it up and the family was sitting around the table and I had our my two-year-old sitting to the right of me and uh, and it was going to be this time of everybody listening to daddy as he reads the story from the bible right anyhow I got a little bit of video of it and I thought I'd share a little bit of how it went okay so just it's a really short video here that, is that the burning bush? Is this hot? did what God had said. Yeah, still hot. He, yes. He went to Pharaoh and said, no, he didn't say hot at this point. He said, let God's people go. Yes, the bush is still burning. Okay. <laughs> what is it cold or hot? <laughs> Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said no.
So at home, they really listen to me. They, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one point. She went away with one point. Very, she had it. She had it down. So yeah, the burning bush was hot. That's great. I hope that uh, you get at least that much out of this sermon, too. So we've been going through this story. We talked about how in the first week you see the creation, the hand reaching up for the fruit, the, the serpent, the temptation. You see, in the first week, we talked about how sin really changed everything. It turned God's great vision for the part of creation he was most passionate about, which is humankind. It, 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 it's changed that. It ruined that. And it separated us from God. And also, we see one of the other repercussions is it also separated us from each other. That, uh, that once we were separated from God, we turned on each other, just like Adam and Eve turned on each other and began blaming each other. And, and ever after, human beings have been blaming each other and, and, and also uh, experiencing the, the repercussions of being separated from God. And then we walk through a lot of different stories, the story of Abraham and he makes a promise that uh, all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham's descendants. And that he'd make Abraham's descendants in a great nation, into a great nation, even though he didn't have kids. And even when he did have kids, God just chose one of his kids, he, Isaac, to build this great nation. I always thought, like, you're going to have a great nation and you only have one kid? That's not a plan for building a great nation. And then his, the next one only had, like, two kids. And I still thought, yeah, that's not going to get you to great nation status very fast. But then Jacob, uh, Abraham's grandson, had 12 kids. And, you know, that's going to get you somewhere fast, right? And uh, then ever after, they, were, they, uh, they moved to Egypt, long story, through Joseph. But in Egypt, they multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. And if, you're, if everybody's having 12 kids, you know what's going to happen, right? So they became a great nation. And uh, so that... that sort of takes us through some of what we've talked about so far. But in this week, week number five, uh, God is speaking to the Israelites on the mount, and he's speaking through Moses, to Moses, to the people, and he's determined to come down and dwell with the people. But in order for this to happen, three things need to take place. I'm going to tell you about them in a second, but first I want to talk about Thanksgiving. See, Thanksgiving is an interesting time. It, for a lot of people, it's a coming together. Like maybe families or friends say, hey, let's, let's eat together, let's be together. What does it take to convince people to join you for Thanksgiving? Especially if they live out of town. What does it take, right? What does it take? It takes, uh, I think the first thing, this is a, a unique Thanksgiving for us because it's the first time we're hosting Thanksgiving for the extended Atkins family. Now, if all the Atkins show up, uh, that's my side of the family, it's 35 of us, okay? Now, my mom and dad only had seven kids, so they aren't going to get to Great Nation very fast, but still, that's pretty decent to start. And so there's 35 of us if we all come, and about two-thirds of us showed up, so there's about 24 of us. So the first question you have to answer when you're telling your family, come, have Thanksgiving with us, they'll say, is there room? That's the first question, right? Is there room? Where am I going to stay? And I, I don't know. How many of you are from out of town and you're here for Thanksgiving? I'm just curious. Okay, great. Well, I wonder where you had to stay. I mean, some of you might have stayed on bunk beds last night, and that's not normal. Or you might have stayed on a hide-a-bed that had a mind of its own and wanted to flip you back in. Maybe you were on one of those mattresses that inflates, but then through the night deflates, and eventually <laughs> you're just lying on the floor, right? Or maybe, seriously, it was so packed in the house where you're staying, you had to sleep on 1977 shag carpet. That's what we have in our house. 
It's original. It's vintage. It's back in style. <laughs> so do you have room? That's the first question you ask. And then there's a couple other things that make a factor. So you say, I'm going to travel from where I am to where you live, and if you ended up here, to Moose Jaw. There might be some other things that are issues. There might be some other things. You might have to make amends for what happened last year. I mean, this is the real stuff of family life, right? You might have to say sorry. You say, I'm not coming down there. Well, wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Please come. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for breaking your favorite dish. I'm sorry for letting my sick kid cough all over you. I'm sorry for arguing so much about politics. I'm sorry for taking all the hot water in the shower. And I'm sorry for cheering for the blue bombers. Right? You might have to say sorry to get your relatives to come back, right? So that might be part of it. So is there room? Do we make amends for last year? This year's going to be better. But to make this year better, you're probably going to have to set up some guidelines, right? So you're going to say, okay, who's going to bring the pumpkin pie? Who's going who's to be responsible for cleaning up after the meal? Uh, who's going to watch the kids when they're, they're playing in the yard? Who, who's going who's gonna to make the turkey, right? This year we actually had, because uh, there was going to be many of us, we said, one turkey, is that going to be enough? Should we make a s- second turkey or should we ha- add a ham, right? And uh, if your family is like my family, uh, you probably have more than enough turkeys and you don't need any more ham, but that's just how we are, right? But we... We have to sort these things out in advance, and then a person says, okay, I'm coming. You got room. It's not going to be as bad as last year. (laughs) And we figured it out, how we're going to live together, how we're going to be good to each other, how this is going to be a positive thing. So back to the story of God coming to dwell with the people. I noticed the similarity between what it might take to get someone to come to your house for Thanksgiving and the requirements God had when he came to dwell with the nation of Israel in the time of Moses. So let me read Exodus 25, 8-9. It says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God is saying, If I come down... If I come down, I need a place to stay. I need a place to dwell. Now, in that time, remember, sin had sort of ruined everything, right? Here are these people who are sinful. The Bible says that our sin separates us from God. And so for God to come and dwell with it, it wasn't like Adam and Eve in the garden just walking together in the cool of the day. Now, there had to be something that showed that humankind had... uh, created a barrier between them and God through their sin. And so how, how could God come and dwell with his people? We couldn't come exactly the same way, just walking in the garden with them in that kind of relationship. It, there had to be some things to show that the, there was a real, actual barrier there. And so God comes to dwell in what's called the tabernacle. It's basically, it's a, you know, sort of a mobile temple of, of sorts that they can move from place to place because they are a moving people from Egypt to the land of Canaan and It has to be moved. But in that tabernacle, there's all these things. Oh, my goodness. There's so much stuff in there that is just like pointing towards Jesus if you knew all about it. But I'm not going to dig through it all. The one thing I'll talk about is there's a spot in it called the Holy of Holies. And it's got this really thick, really tall curtain that separates that part of the tabernacle from the rest of it. So you'll have 
people who will serve in the tabernacle, the priests, and they'll go around and they'll light candles and they'll, uh, there's bread that they put out. There's different things that they do in that uh, tabernacle. But the Holy of Holies is the place where God has come to dwell. So he's in the camp, and, and the Israelites camp with all their tents all around the tabernacle, and he's right dwelling in the midst of them, but there's still a separation. There's still something that says that God is holy, pure, sinless, and that mankind is not that way like they were originally in the garden. They've chosen their own way, and so God, uh, he's got, he needs a place to stay, but that place to stay has to reflect the reality of, the, of what's happened to relationship between God and man. And so that takes us to the next thing. And I'll read Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. The law is only a shadow of good things that are to come. Not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never. Okay, God's going to give the law, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it's only a shadow of the good things to come. It's not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer feel guilty for their sins, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and bulls and goats to take away sins. So the second thing, if I'm going to come down, I need a place to stay. But the second thing, if I'm going to come down, sin must be atoned for. Sin must be uh, dealt with. So there was a sacrificial system set up. And it was a foreshadowing. You know what foreshadowing is, right? If you're watching a movie and you suddenly are like, um, hey, that seems like it might be significant later in the movie. Or you're reading a book, and you go, whoa, 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 whoa. I think they're telling me this detail because I need to know it later. It must be foreshadowing a future thing, right? If you're familiar with the Marvel movies, right? In the Avengers, Age of Ultron, there's a, there's a sort of a, a party where all the heroes are taking it easy, and they say, let's see if we can lift Thor's hammer. And everybody's like, oh, I can't lift it. Oh, and everybody can't lift it. And then Captain America comes up, and he goes to lift it, and the thing... and all this time, Thor is standing there smugly like, <laughs> no, you're not worthy, you're not worthy. And then anyhow, he goes, here comes Captain America, and it, it jiggles a little bit, which it hadn't done before that. And even Thor's eyes go up in amazement, right? That, what is that? That's foreshadowing. Now, if you haven't read, watched all the rest of the movies, that's foreshadowing. I'm not telling you anymore. <laughs> it's significant, though. It's significant. Because... That will come back to be a factor that you'll need to know later on, right? And this is the same. Here it's like, okay, God gives this sacrificial system, and it's sort of like there's sacrifices that need to be done to atone for sin, but they don't fully atone for sin. They don't fully, they're a, for, they're a shadow of something to come. There's something yet to come. And we know, because we've read the rest of the Bible, that the thing that's yet to come is Jesus' sacrifice. We know that. But here at this point, they're just saying, no, that, we're doing this. It's what God has required in order for him to come down and dwell with us. Uh, but we are not cleansed once and for all by these sacrifices. The guilt of our sin is not forever removed by these sacrifices. In the future, there will be a sacrifice that will do that. That will cleanse us once and for all and that the guilt will be completely removed. But that's not where we live now. 
That's not the reality of what, where we're at now. These sacrifices are an annual reminder of our sinful condition, of how humanity has, through sin, become separated from a holy God. And so, that was one of the conditions for God to come down. Sin must be atoned for. The word atone is an interesting word. It's, if you just break it down or just write it out, it, it basically reads at one, <laughs> atone, at one. And it basically means uh, God wants us to become one with him. Wants to have the intimate relationship that Adam and Eve initially had back in the garden. Wants us to have that kind of closeness and relationship. But there's a step that needs to be made in for, for atonement to happen. In order for that un, at oneness with God to happen, there's something very significant that must be done that humankind can't do. That we can't do. We can't make ourselves pure, holy, and perfect. We can't make ourselves sinless. You say, well, what's the point of all this? What's the point of all this? It's, it's declaring our condition. It's, it's showing us our condition. That every one of us, even though we need, God wants us back in relationship with him, we can't on our own bring ourselves back into relationship with him. So God knows that, and he provides the way back. But it's not bulls, not goats. It's not this sacrificial system. In faith, the Israelites trusted in this. They trusted that the shadow, or that, that what they were doing in obedience to God was foreshadowing something yet to come. They didn't know as much as we know. That's fair, but they just trusted God. Okay, we'll obey God. We'll do what he requires. But we, there is something yet to come, and that's what God provided. God saw us in our sin, knew we were separated from God, and he provided the way back through Jesus being the ultimate perfect sacrifice. So if I come down, I need a place to stay. If I come down, sin must be atoned for. And then let me give you the last one. If I come down, there has to be guidelines on how we treat each other. There has to be guidelines on how we treat each other. Mark 12, 30 to 31, Jesus was basically asked, what are the most important, well, it's not guidelines, but commands. What's the most important commands? And this is what he said. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second, so that's the most important commandment, number one, love God with all your heart. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Number one, love God with all your heart. Number two, love your neighbor as thyself. So if I come down, there has to be guidelines on how we treat each other. And you know what he does? He begins to lay out the practicalities of these two commands. Do you ever, if you're familiar at all with the Ten Commandments, um, the first four of the Ten Commandments are talking about how to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. They're practicalities. They're, they're, they're ways that you flesh that out in real, in real time. And then the next six, the last six of the Ten Commandments, are talking about how to love your neighbor as yourself. Fleshing it out in, in real time with real, you know, black and white, clear commands on what to do, what not to do. And I was watching um, Stephen Colbert. He was interviewing... Uh, congressman in the United States. And the congressman was saying, the Ten Commandments are really important. And, and Stephen Colbert said, okay, well, you know, why are they important? And he went on to say, you know, they're really important. We shouldn't do away with them. And he was making the case that all the courthouses in a certain area, maybe the whole states, I don't know, some part of the states, should have the Ten Commandments listed because that's what, you know, basically our judicial system 
is based on Judeo-Christian heritage. And so he said, that's important. And I thought, this is good. This is good. I like this interview. And then Stephen Colbert said, he said, what are they? And the, the congressman said, what? He said, what are the Ten Commandments? And then the congressman was like, uh, you want me to list them? And he said, yeah. Uh, and then he faltered through listing three of them, and he said, that's the only three I can remember. <laughs> and I was like, oh, they're important, are they? Well, let's, let's list the Ten Commandments, okay? Let's just do that. Let's just list the Ten Commandments. And what we're going to do is I'm going to get, uh, each section is going to do two of them. So I'm going to start with you guys. You can start sweating right now. I'm going to get you to do the first two commandments that help us to understand um, how to relate well to God, how to love God with all our heart. And then I'll get you guys to do the second two, still under the guise of how to love God with all your heart. So we're going to learn from these two sections how to love God with all your heart. And then these last three sections, two at a time, we'll get you to do two commands on how to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So let's just start here. What, do you guys know what the first two commands are? Can you just take a gander at them? I'll help you if you need help. But do you know what the first command is? No other gods before me. That is the, thou shalt have, or you shall have. I, I memorized it all in King James, so I'll sound like, I, like Shakespeare when I talk. But anyhow, that's right. You shall have no other commands. Oh, sorry. Blah, blah, blah. You shall have no other gods, thank you, before me. That's the first one. Okay. And the second one's very similar, so it sometimes gets forgotten. Do you guys know what the second one is? No other gods before me. And the other one says, you should not make... Ah, yeah, everybody knows this. No idols, no graven images. Yes, you got it. Okay, good. They just gave you some really good help on how to love God. Isn't that? Yeah, give them a hand. Give them a hand. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Thank you, guys. We're taking your advice to the bank. Oh, no, they're commands, not advice. Okay, we'll take those commands to the bank. Okay, that's great. Okay, second section. These are still commands about how to love God. Okay, so... Uh, now. We gave them easier ones, didn't we? Aren't you feeling that right now? Oh, you gave us the third and fourth ones. Those are really hard. They really are really hard. Okay, but let's, let's just see if you can, can do them. The second one, or the third one, sorry. Oh, okay. I, oh, you're getting them both in one. Okay, but first, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain, right? Or thou shalt not, or what? right? Don't take the name of the Lord. Oh, so we got to reverence God's name. Don't use it flippantly, and don't use it as a swear word, and all sorts of different things. You don't, don't, don't with it, but honor God, right? Because you honor his name. That is awesome. That'll help you love God, won't it? That'll be huge. How about the fourth one? It's tricky. Aha, yeah. Remember the Sabbath. Uh, keep it holy. So that's one day a week, right? In the Old Testament, they would Saturday was their day, right? The New Testament, because Jesus rose on Sunday, the Lord's day for us is Sunday. But you take that Sabbath principle and you say, well, I'm going to honor God. One day a week, I'm going to set aside for rest, like God rests, I'm going to set aside for worship, because this is the time where I can be really focused on the Lord. And guess what? You're here. Hey, you must have known about this principle. You guys, you cheated. You studied in advance. That's great. Great practical underpinnings of the command to love God with all your heart. Awesome. Now, you guys, we need some help with loving our neighbors. Okay? So can you help us? Now, this is the, the fifth and the sixth ones. And these ones are, I would say this is probably the hardest transition point is to get the fifth and the sixth. If you can get the fifth, I'll be really impressed because people forget this one all the time. But go for it. Anyone know what the fifth one is? 
Honor your father and mother. Oh, that's great. The wedge seats were helping us. That's great. The wedge seats, we always forget them. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Honor your father and mother. That's the fifth one, and that's really important. And what can you honor your father and mother for? Well, start with the fact they gave you life, or if they adopted you, they chose you, right? Those are, that's where you begin. And then if they did anything beyond that, that's gravy that you can add to your thankfulness, right? You say, yeah, thanks for that one trip to Chuck E. Cheese. Awesome, thank you, right? I'm also thankful for that. But you gave me life. That's a bit bigger. Okay, so that's great. Oh, what's the sixth one? Shall not, do not kill or shall not kill or do not murder, right? Okay, different translations, different ways. Okay, that's really important too. So now we're starting to get into the, so if you honor your father and mother, that's your most immediate neighbors, the ones you grew up with, right? And then... Now it's, we're spreading a little farther. Don't kill anyone. That's really helpful in loving your neighbor as yourself. Don't kill anyone. Okay. How about you guys? Give us, give us the next ones. Don't commit adultery. Yes. You should not commit adultery. And then the next one. Oh, oh we had some discrepancy. I think it's steal. My mom's right. Uh, <laughs> you know on Thanksgiving I'm going to say my mom's right anyhow, right? It, it, <laughs> But I think, I think it's steel. Yeah, steel. Okay, but you gave a hint to the next crew. So what are the last two? Don't cover your neighbor's wife is number 10. But number nine, don't bear false witness. Or don't lie, but, but that's part of it. Okay, so we got lots in there. Wow, you guys did it. You did it. You shared some really good advice. Wait, not advice. Commands. Commands. Right? Commands, how do you, now you know what, I think of it as a pyramid, you've got the two top commands, love God, uh, love God is the top, you can't mix those up, if you love your neighbor first before you love God, you'll just use God to please people, and that won't turn out well, or godly, okay, so flip it the right way, love God is first, and then love your neighbor as yourself is second, and then under that you've got ten commandments, and you know that those commandments in the law are undergirded by 600 other commandments, did you know that? And some of them are civil law, ceremonial law. Um, some of them we don't follow anymore because we're not the Old Testament people of Israel. They were for them. Like, we don't have cities of refuge. Oh, wait, the Americans do. But whatever, we don't have cities of refuge anymore because that was a thing for Old Testament Israel. And uh, we don't have, uh, we don't, we can wear mixed fabric clothing because that was a purity requirement, right? That showed that we were a set-apart people. We don't mix up our crops I don't know why you do that anyhow. But they didn't, you couldn't do that as an Israelite because you're showing that you were God's people. God is showing now himself through a multi-ethnic people of God in the world. That's what he's doing now. Not through the nation of Israel primarily, but through many peoples who've come to embrace Jesus. Right? So some of those things we don't do anymore. But they were really helpful to Israel, a nation of slaves that had no government in the middle of the desert. How are we going to live together? And so they had all these commands that helped them. And, uh, of course, it's very valuable to still study the law. Even though some of those things have been done away with or fulfilled in Jesus, we still come back and recognize there's moral laws in there that God gave to his people that we still look back to and, and hold to. How much of the Ten Commandments have we thrown out? We still go back to that and go, yeah. That's some legitimate stuff, even though I did point out the one tweak with, the, with the keeping the Sabbath holy. The rest of those, you just look at those and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure God still requires that. that that's what holiness looks like to follow. Like That's part of what holiness looks like, is to follow those Ten Commandments. Those things are still legit for today. 
So, if I'm going to come down, there's got to be a place for me. If I'm going to come down, sin must be atoned for. And if I'm going to come down, there has to be guidelines for how we treat each other. Now, what was the first commandment that they broke? Yeah, they made an idol and they worshipped another god, so I guess they were breaking two at a time. And it only took them 40 days. 40 days into saying, we're going to obey what you say, God, they broke it. And they broke the biggest one. Right? Some people say, what's the biggest problem in Canada today? Oh, well, you know, it's problems with division in the country or it's problems with, you know, you could say uh, it's gambling, or it's greed, materialism, uh, it's drugs. You, know, you could just list anything. But you know what? They're all sort of fruit of a different root, and that is not honoring God in our lives. The first act of command is, is to, is to uh, not have anything before God. So that's, that's where... Uh, they began to disobey God in the very first thing. It, didn't, it wasn't that stealing was rampant in the camp. It wasn't that, uh, uh, you know, even murder was even rampant in the camp right away. The Israelites have done all those things, and so has the rest of humanity. It was that right away they began to worship a golden calf, and uh, Moses' brother was a great enabler, and he created this golden calf, and then he said, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. Oh, After God has led them out, after he says, quote, I've carried you on eagle's wings, you sort of get where the wrath of God comes from. God did all of this. He paved the way out of Egypt. He brought them out. He did all this to rescue his people. He heard their cries, and then here they are worshiping a cow statue and saying, this is the God that saved us three months after their deliverance. If you were afraid when God gave you the law, you should be afraid when you break the law. So, before I get too arrogant and say, boy, those Israelites were really dumb, I have to recognize that I've struggled with all ten of the Ten Commandments. I've struggled with them. In fact, a case could be made that I've broken all ten. I've walked my way through it before. I've done this many times where I just said, well, have I ever put anything before God? Yes, I have. Right? Have I ever set something up as an idol in my life? Yes, I have. Right? Have I ever, you know, disregarded the Sabbath? Have I, have I taken the Lord's name in vain? Have I dishonored my parents? Have I murdered? You say, well, you have. You can't be a pastor here. Well, Jesus made it stronger. He said, if you have hatred in your heart for a brother, it's like murder in your heart. Okay, guilty. Right? Have I committed adultery? Well, Jesus took it further, right? If you have lust in your heart, guilty. Right? Have I stolen? Have I committed false uh, testimony or lied? And have I coveted? Wow. Is anyone innocent of any of them? No. So, here we have the reality is that as God lays this out, uh, one of the little children's books I had sort of says it in a cheeky way. They said, here's ten rules to make you perfect. <laughs> and it's just a joke. Because it can't make you perfect because you can't do it. It's not that they aren't good. It's just you can't accomplish it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is what the Bible teaches us. And so when you read the Ten Commandments, you don't grab onto it and say, I'm going to follow all those rules and then I'll be right with God. Well, good luck. You should try to follow those rules, but on your way you will discover 
the brokenness inside of you and your inability to obey God. When you look in the New Testament and Jesus, uh, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you might say, I love the Sermon on the Mount. And, and C.S. Lewis is the one who says, you love the Sermon on the Mount? Can anyone logically say they love the Sermon on the Mount? You love getting hit? He says, this is how he says, you love getting hit in the head with a two-by-four? It's like, when you come up against what God requires to be holy, you realize, I can't do this. And God knows that about you, and he knows that about me. And that's why he sends his son, Jesus. Not as a sacrifice that just does the job for a year, but as a sacrifice that does the job forever. And that's what we learn as we look into uh, the New Testament. I want to just read a few verses out of 1 Corinthians and then also out of Hebrews, and I'll be, I'll be ending with that. So 1 Corinthians says, first, deals with the first things. If God's going to come and dwell with you, he needs a place to stay. And now it's different. Because of Jesus, it's different. It's not a, a little pocket in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies with a curtain that you, that's so thick you can't get through it. He wants to come and dwell in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Your body is a temple. Now, it's used in the common culture now that your body is a temple so don't smoke or your body is a temple so don't eat Doritos. That's not what it means. No matter what shape your body is in, if you've skipped on your diet or if you ate junk food for 40 years, your body, here's the good news. God wants to come dwell in you and your body is just fine for that purpose. I don't care what shape your body is in. God wants to dwell in you. God wants to come, and the place he's looking for to dwell is not an Old Testament tabernacle. It's you, you, you that he wants to come and dwell in. This is good news. God says, I want to come. I need a place to dwell. The place that he's looking for now is you. And then he says, if, if I'm going to come down, sin must be atoned for. Wow, the great news is Jesus has done that. Let me read you some verses out of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And then he goes on to say, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So once and for all, when Jesus comes, dies on the cross, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for you and me, rises from the grave, all of that makes it possible for you and me to be right with God, for sin to be atoned for permanently, not temporarily, not annually, but forever. That your guilt is not just paid for, but your guilt is removed. That you don't walk around this life saying, oh, I'm such a sinner, but you go, wow, God is such a great forgiver. That you have a total transformation in how you view your life. The headline of your life is not, or my life is not, Steve is a great sinner. That's actually true about me. But it's not the headline over my life. The headline over my life is that Jesus forgave Steve's sins and has taken his guilt away. Forever. Forever. And he's come to dwell in Steve. Even though this body's not perfect, he's chosen it. He's chosen it as the place where he will dwell. That's good, good news. And then 
Sin must be atoned for. What about the guidelines? What about the rules? What about that part? Hebrews 10 again says, The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. So God's making a new covenant. You know covenant and testament are interchangeable. Old Testament, New Testament. Old covenant, New covenant. Okay? So this is the new covenant. This is the covenant, the testament. This is the agreement I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I'll put my laws on stone tablets. Nope. I'll put my laws in their hearts. And I'll write them on their minds. So here's the thing that changes. Even though we read the Old Testament laws and the New Testament teaching, like Sermon on the Mount and stuff like that, to understand what God requires and how, what God's people look like in how they act, even though we read that, it's the Holy Spirit's work within us that produces the change. It's not a checklist of rules that we meticulously uh, observe We pay attention to them, but it's not our checklist of rules or some outside um, force that constrains us to do what's right. It's an inner transformation of the heart that we begin to delight in what God requires. He's writing his law on our hearts and on our minds so that from the inside flows right action and flows right relationship with God and right relationship with each other. And God wants to do that in you today. I want to invite you to stand this morning. And the worship team will invite you to come back. You know, when Jesus died, one of the things that happened physically was in the temple. Now, they had replaced the tabernacle, the mobile temple, with the real solid temple. What I, one of the physical things that happened was that thick curtain that separated God's presence from humankind, it was torn. It was torn. It was taken out of the way. And the Bible tells us it was torn not from the bottom. Like if I came along and I was going to tear, if I could tear that really thick curtain, which I probably couldn't do, but if I could do that, I would come in and take it from the bottom and tear it to the top. But the Bible tells us that that temple was not torn by a priest it wasn't torn by a human it wasn't torn by any sinful person like you or me it was torn from the top to the bottom by God yeah six inches thick that's right that's the dimensions of it. that's why he couldn't tear it it was torn by God so God himself removed the gap between us and him and you know what is left for us to do Well, I, I will sum it up with a great big yes to God. We have, we, we, when we accept that, yeah, that's true about me, what you've been talking about this morning, sinful, separated from God, that's true about all humankind. There's no one righteous, not one. That's true. So you come to accept that. And then you come to believe that what Jesus did for you because of that reality is the truth. Not only that it's the truth, but that what Jesus has done on the cross is sufficient. It's enough. It's fully enough to deal with all of my sin. So if you're here and you're hearing my voices this morning, no matter how ugly it's gotten, no matter what secret sin you have in your closet that you've never told anyone about, no matter what you think, no human being could ever forgive me or love me if they knew this about me, God's grace is bigger than that sin, and he stands ready to forgive.